Hi, I'm Sarah Shea. And I'm Strangely Duesberg. Welcome to the Pilot House. A podcast where we watch all the shows we missed the first time around. And try to figure out where the heck they were going with this. So, Moonlighting. Is a show that neither of us have seen any of. None of. Not a second of. I know it has to do with Bruce Willis, young Bruce Willis with mm-hmm. hair. Mm-hmm. And... I had not remembered this part. I knew there was a lady and it was an actress that I should know, mm-hmm. but I couldn't remember who it was. But it's, it's Sybil Shepherd. Yeah. You reminded me that it was Sybil Shepherd yes. before we started recording this. And I, I first came across this show because I'm always looking for new nerdy content, sci-fi, fantasy, etc. And I first found this show on Wikipedia under like fantasy on television. This show supposedly has a supernatural angle. It does? Yes. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, Oh, that's ex- I'm excited now. Uh, I realized when thinking about what am I going to say for this segment, I have zero idea what the show is actually about. Oh, I'm sorry I spoiled that angle. I, I No, well, you had to say it. This yeah, is what this yeah, is for. exactly. All I knew about it, the sum total of what I knew about it, uh-huh. Bruce Willis uh-huh. and Sybil Shepard, although I, I'd forgotten that it was her, I knew they were like working together in some way. Uh-huh. I knew that it was a will they won't they thing. Yeah. Given as a canonical example of the will they won't they by many people. Mm-hmm. And also is well known and often referenced as a canonical example of a will they won't they where they did and then the show suffered for it. Right. Honestly, other than that, I realized I had no idea what what kind of business they they business. They ran, or were they detectives, or was was she the boss? Was he the boss? Were they partners? Honestly, I I really realized I have no idea what the Din Dam show is about. Yeah, so I don't know why it's called Moonlighting even. So I know that it's vaguely supernatural. I know that we've got Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd. I know that there's the will they won't they dynamic, and then the last thing I know about this show is that similar to. When Robert Downey Jr. was first cast as Iron Man and he brought all the baggage of being Robert Downey Jr. And it was kind of this risky casting thing. When they made Die Hard. Yeah. And Bruce Willis was playing this everyman cop who just kind of like he had no superpowers and he was just a dude and he was in an unimaginable situation. And he was like, Ugh, I can't believe this. He was bringing with him all of the baggage of being the character on Moonlighting because that's how America knew him. And apparently... It's like this night and day difference. And that's what rocketed him to stardom was that he got this chance to do this totally different character that he has been playing now for the last 30 years. Yeah. He's basically become like a superhero character in in the Die Hard follow-up Die Hard movies. In everything. Which... Has been covered. Bruce Willis. We don't need to talk about Bruce Willis's. If you want to know more about how Bruce Willis has become a weird caricature of himself, I'm pretty sure there's a good cracked video about it. (laughs) Yeah, see his published works. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so here we go. Moonlighting. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Okay, you guys. That was, there was so much yeah. that I was unprepared for. Wow. You guys, we had no idea so what we were getting into with the, this thing. The, the Moonlighting Pilot is a feature-length film. It is an 80-minute long film. N- nothing about it reads like a television show at all. Yeah, it's it was shot. It's like shot it sh- very cinematically. Yeah, absolutely. for the period, it, it shot absolutely like a mid late eighties actiony movie. It's uh, yeah, it, it was very confusing. We're gonna do something a little bit different here uh, because of the overall length of what we just watched. We're gonna try to really zip through our recap and spend a lot more time talking about our reactions and feelings after this. But because my God. God, there's so much yeah. to unpack. We were completely wrong in our idea about what the show was, first of all. I think we both were expecting something a lot more of a lighthearted, sitcom-y type show. Right. And then, I mean, who knows Which... what the actual show's going to be? It's hard to say, because this, as a pilot, I would say in some ways this fails because it did not give you an idea of what the show is going to be like. It really read like a film and then if there's a TV show, it would be a spinoff. 
Yeah, almost. Like, a, like a, the TV show that the po- movie was so popular, they made a TV show about their continuing adventures. Like nothing about this, I have to express, is a TV show. So let's get into this recap. All right. We get three title cards before anything happens. They are Sybil Shepherd's name, Bruce Willis's name, and then the title Moonlighting. With some like real chill jazz playing over yeah, it which yeah. immediately i was like well this is a different feel than i was expecting and i had no idea how different it was going to be so then we get our sort of standard even though it's shot very much like a film in terms of how a television show operates we get a standard cold open where we have uh a couple waking up in bed the husband jonathan uh puts on his watches two of them and goes jogging and uh meanwhile somewhere else there is a punk with a massive mohawk. He's a classic 80s movie punk. It's perfect. Too old to actually be a punk with a bleach blonde, foot high, spiked up mohawk. Like ridiculously comically large zits. I don't know why, but in the 80s, in movies and TV shows, all punks had bad skin. He, he puts on a pair of like swimmers goggles? goggles. Yeah. And headphones. And there's a close-up shot of him putting a tape in his Walkman, which was a very nice 80s moment. Mm-hmm. Although I wish they'd shown us what the tape was. And he, he loads a gun, uh, puts it in a little holster on his which, leg. That's the first thing. No, it's strapped to his chest. Strapped to his chest. Which tra- is the tra- first thing yes. that suggests to us that this isn't just your usual punk. He's not sticking this gun in his in his coat pocket or his right. uh, waistband. He has a holster. He's got a holster. So something something's up with this guy. So... We cut back to Mr. Two Watches. He's out for a run in the park, and all of a sudden, the punk runs up near him, and they're kind of doing that awkward thing. There's a very long, extended sequence that is movie length and not it's, TV it's, length. It starts out as that awkward thing where when you're out for a jog, and then someone else runs up beside you, and you sort of match pace, and then they're kind of running faster than you, so you run faster, and it just beca- it's that awkward social moment that then descends into something but it's, different. It's clearly supposed to be quite threatening because of the music. The punk eventually pulls a gun on Jonathan once they're out of anyone else's view and clearly is about to shoot him. Jonathan runs, gets hit by a car, falls down on the pavement. The punk hides his gun, runs up and starts acting like he's doing CPR on Jonathan. While he's doing this out of sight of any of the crowd that's starting to gather, he takes one of Jonathan's watches, uh, sort of a, a oddly shaped square one and leaves the really nice Rolex on Jonathan's wrist and then sort of pretends to do some more CPR. And then for no reason whatsoever, talks to the police and gives them his name because we need that for the plot. Yes. <laughs> no reason he would talk to and the police after just stealing someone's watch, but okay. Runs away. Runs like, away. Leaves the scene mm-hmm. and disappears. And we get our opening credits, which is a slow pan over... Many photos. Many, many photos. Glossy photos. Glossy photos. We're basically given about a two and a half minute reminder that Sybil Shepard is a very beautiful woman and has been for some time. And also we are basically also given the information that clearly her character is a model because these are like framed magazine covers from all over the world of her from age 14 to, you know, whatever 30 something she's supposed to be at the point of this show. So the, cam- <clears throat> the camera keeps panning, and it pans onto Sybil Shepherd's character, Maddie, Madeline Hayes. She's asleep in bed, and she's awoken by the sound of crashing glass. And I have to say, I did think, oh, okay, this is like at her modeling agency or something, because mm-hmm. there's always pictures of her as a model on the wall. No, they're in her bedroom, which does tell us something about her as a character. So she runs downstairs, finds her hired chef, who her is... a, a comical a, Italian comically chef. Italian chef. Throwing a fit, smashing all of her crockery and everything. It's an extended sequence we don't need to go into, but the long and short of it is her housekeeper reveals that all, all the, of staff the staff checks have, have been, been bouncing, bouncing for a month now, which Maddie didn't know about because she just got home from a cruise. So basically everybody quits. Uh, the driver has quit and taken the car with him as collateral. She doesn't know what's going on. She tries calling her uh, accountant. The phone is cut off, so she calls a cab and goes to her accountant or her business agent or whatever. And at their office, the office is empty. It's it's clearly been cleared out in a hurry. There's trash on the floor. The desks are empty. She then goes to her lawyer. Let me know if I'm skipping anything in the notes. No, you're, you're doing, you're she saying goes to her all lawyer. of my notes yeah. for me. This is great. <laughs> she then, I just want to get through this. <laughs> Ordeal. You're, you're saying things that aren't even in the notes. Oh, good. We're getting so, lots of extra. So then we go. Then we go to her lawyer, who tells her basically, "Here's what we've got. 
you got screwed by your business uh, agent or whatever. They took all of her liquid assets. She is broke, effectively, except for her expensive house and whatever other shit she owns. She still clearly owns a lot of things, including, it turns out... A bunch of small businesses, which, which her her lawyer then realizes have been losing her hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So it's some sort of weird tax write-off thing. Yeah, that she she's owns been like keeping. a dog grooming salon and a nail salon and a detective agency, oh. and they're all shitty little businesses. And he basically says, "Okay, your next step is you got to go liquidate all these businesses. You can't afford to lose any more money from them." We then cut to the interior of the City of Angels Detective Agency and. The best character on the whole damn show. Appears. This is the secretary of the detective agency, played by Alice Beasley, who is just this wonderful Shelley Duvall type. I, I'm sure I've seen her in other things. She must have played a secretary in, like, 20 80s movies or something. Yeah. Like, she she's just... definitely got that vibe. Yeah. She's cute and mousy and has curly hair and kind of a voice like this. And she answers the phone with a comically long rhyming thing where she talks about... You lose him, a... we'll find him. He he cheats, we'll peep. You know, like, it's You ridiculous. drop it, we'll pick it up. Yeah, it's... No it's... case is too big or too small. It's comically excessive, like everything in this whole movie. And the, the entire... The detective agency looks like your typical sort of uh, police department floor where you've got yeah. people Tons going people... to and fro, phones ringing, fax machines... With going paper, off. yeah, there's Computers so much going everywhere. on. Then uh, Maddie we, arrives yeah. on the warpath and yeah. says, who's in charge of all of this? And we cut to our first view of young Bruce Willis. With hair. So much hair, you guys. We had to pause and we, look at the hair. And really take it in. He's so incredibly young, and it was a moment. But he's doing a ridiculous thing where he goes, he shoots, he scores, blah, 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 blah. He's imagining himself he's, as a basketball he hero. the f- president. It's, it's to show us the character is very bombastic and whatever. So then Maddie is ushered in by the secretary and immediately Bruce Willis's character starts hitting on her like a sleaze bag. Incredibly sleazy. Like over the top sleazy to the point that if he thought she was a client, he would be driving her away. Like it was really yeah, weird. He ridiculous. wasn't he wasn't hitting on her in a in a complimentary way. He was hitting on her like he was trying to offend her. So it's very confusing. Finally she manages to cut in through his like ridiculous stream of consciousness dialogue he accuses her of being a miss march and playboy and a accuses, bunch of other things know. lets him know that she owns the business and he is fired she's closing it down she's going to give everybody severance packages yeah it's she's done very polite actually she's about very it, polite to be clear she doesn't go this two-bit operation is done for she says this is over i've recently had some losses and i have to shut this business down i'm very sorry everyone's severance pay will be honored if that was organized otherwise people will be given two weeks pay she's actually very polite about it he turns into a complete even bigger jackass than he already was calls her a stone cold bitch like he's just a garbage character from the get-go and i i know it was the 80s but i'm having a hard time believing we were actually supposed to like him at all well at this point maddie has also had enough of him because she ends up slapping him across the face and leaving yeah we cut to the secretary with her like little box with her little house plan in it and her thing saying goodbye to the visual cue for i am leaving yeah i'm leaving this office And she says very genuinely, like, thanks, You were the most fun boss. I ever had. And he says, hey, don't worry about it. I've had five calls on my personal line. Other agencies are desperate to hiring me. As soon as I get in, I'm going to hire everyone back. And she just looks at him and is like, okay. She knows exactly what kind of a a flim-flam man he is. And it's adorable. It's the, she's the best character in this whole damn thing. Yeah. And uh, she leaves. Okay. So we, we now see Maddie is on a date with like a fancy plastic surgeon and he is immediately just like this boring dick who's not really even listening to what she has to yeah, say. Yeah, he's, he's clearly a, he is written immediately as a terrible person. She is just not, does not want to be on a date with him. Dr. Spillner. Yeah. So we, and then our view cuts to sort of this unrelated scene where there's this adorable little kid named Jennifer and it's Having Jennifer's birthday. birthday. And it's in a cute little apartment and the whole and like, family is there. Grandma and grandpa's there. And then all of a sudden the phone rings and it's for grandpa. Yeah. He goes in the other room and answers it. And the person on the other end of the line is the punk and the punk is nervous. And the punk says, I got, I got it. I got it. I got the thing. And he's like, well, we'll meet up tomorrow, like we said. Yeah. No, we got to do, do it now. And he's like, fine, I'll meet you in an hour. And, so and then, like, I can't express enough how cutesy and adorable we've got, like, immigrant grandma and grandpa. Grandpa has thinning hair and a f- sweater vest and a bow tie. Like, he is adorable. We have no idea how he could be involved with this punk. 
So the grandpa makes up a lie for why he has to leave the party early and he heads out. We come back to Maddie's date with Dr. Spellner. It's not going well. It's awful. He's boring. But all of a sudden, the maitre d' comes over and tells Dr. Spellner, you have a call. Uh, Dr. Spellner gets up, goes to answer the call. David appears, and we it's immediately made clear that David has arranged for someone to call and tell Dr. Spellner there's an emergency somewhere else. Yeah, he's so found Maddie because he away. needs to hassle her even more. He kind of seems to indicate that he wants to come up with some way to keep the business going. He says that they should be partners in the detective business, which doesn't really make a lot of sense Uh to Maddie or to us, the audience. To be honest. It doesn't really make sense. Dr. Spellner shows back up, says he's got to go. Yeah. He leaves. David tries to sit down and, and eat Dr. Spellner's dinner with Maddie. Maddie is not having any of it. She goes and gets her, uh, she goes to the coat check. They end up at the elevator. It's a high rise building because it's a fancy restaurant. She's desperate to get the thing. It is established in the dialogue that this is a very tall building. Important point. She's and she's continually pushing the, pushing the down button. While on David the continues to be annoying. Okay, so meanwhile, while this is all going on in the restaurant, we keep cutting back to the punk who is driving around in his comically weird Franken Beetle, <laughs> and he is being pursued by this really fancy car. At one point, the his car gets stopped. Some guys get out of the really fancy car. They're a very bland-looking 80s-style businessman with big aviator glasses, and his henchman, a large sort of German-looking blonde man. He kind of looks like Rocky from Rocky Horror. Yeah, sort of an Ivan Drago kind of character. Exactly. And they, they both come up to the punk, and they the punk is afraid of them, which is a, it's this really fun reversal on kind of the standard trope of the time where you have this very typical TV punk who's very afraid of these sort of bland slicked hair, bland business guys with Wall Street types. glasses. So the whole time we're cutting back and forth between David and Maddie in the restaurant and the punk running from these guys. At one point they have a foot chase and then it's they ridiculous. get in elevators. They're two glass elevators. So the two elevators are going up this building and then the cutting back and forth between the punk and David and Maddie, it, it starts to cut back and forth faster and faster. Yeah. And you start to realize, oh, they're in the same building. She's waiting for the elevator. He, the punk is in. At one point, the bland man uh, corners the punk for a second and pulls out a switchblade, which is hilarious because the punk has a gun, I thought. But anyway, the elevators keep going up. And then all of a sudden, we cut to David and Ma Maddie pushes the button again. The elevator opens. The punk is standing there and he's sort of shaking. He reaches out and very desperately puts the watch that he stole onto Maddie's wrist and then keels over. The bland man's knife is in his back and he dies right there. Then Maddie faints in the most unconvincing faint. One of the fakest faints I have ever seen. Rolls her eyes, goes limp right on to Bruce Willis. Comical. We next see the inside of a police station where David is being questioned. He's he's throwing things at the officers like, this isn't how this goes. I get a phone call. And well, he's being aggressively goofy and like sassy to a level that doesn't make sense. Although they are also being like your friend Gunther. And he's like, I never met the guy. It does seem weird that they seem to think that he knows this punk. But he's also being over the top jokey with them. Yeah. In an in antagonistic way, which I think was definitely them showing us more of, look, this guy is such an asshole. He'll even be unnecessarily antagonistic and jokey with cops who well, are bringing him in to question him about a murder. So. so then they give him his phone call. He goes over, picks up the phone, turns to all the cops and says, what do you guys want on your pizza? The next thing we see is... David and all the cops coming out of the room, eating happily pizza. eating pizza. <laughs> Joking with each other. Which I definitely thought that what do you like on your pizza was more of him being jokey. Nope. Apparently he ordered them a pizza. So we were a little bit confused as to why David was being questioned at all. And then the cops come out and ask Maddie to come back in the room and talk to her. And, and David says, I told him you were my partner. So David has said, has already told the police that him and Maddie are investigating stuff. So Maddie gets hauled back there, which again, like why? She's yeah. back in questioning for a little while. She comes out. She's obviously exhausted. Walks to the front door of the police station. Comes out. There is a media circus. The whole press is there. Someone Everyone's from Entertainment Tonight is there, like, saying, is it true that you are starting, starting a detective a agency called Blue Moon Detective Agency <laughs> with David Matt Addison? Oh, and we established earlier, which we skipped over, that the thing that catapulted her to stardom in a very young age was being in a series of commercials. Shampoo commercials. For Blue Moon Shampoo, 
which has a ridiculous catchphrase. A like moonbeam in every bottle. Milk, honey, and a teaspoon of moonbeams in every bottle. Oh my or some gosh. Nonsense. It's referenced constantly. That's why the show is called Moonlighting. So Maddie kind of is just like, oh my gosh, what the heck? And then she looks at the edge of the crowd, sees David, and chases him. He runs away. They end up down in the parking garage of the police department. And Maddie's just like, what the fuck? Like, she's so done with him at this point. And she's very, yeah, she very reasonably is like, just please leave. I just, what the hell is this David? And And then as soon as he goes, okay, you know what? You're right. He has almost an honest moment. Yeah, I'm sorry I've hassled you. He starts to leave. And she's like, finally, he goes. He leaves. She goes to he's call leaving. a cab. Oh. He says that he's leaving. I'm leaving. He keeps turning back. I'm really going. She's like, okay. This is me going. And finally he leaves. He's gone. She goes to call a cab and on a he... rotary telephone. A rotary payphone. Oh, my A rotary payphone. Oh. I've never even seen a rotary payphone in my life. I was alive when the show came on the air. Out of nowhere, David comes driving into the parking garage doing donuts in her Porsche. Yeah. And he hops out, gives her the keys, and says... You know, I couldn't leave you stranded here. It's your car. She goes, thank you. Yeah. The reason he has, it's her car, but he has it, is it was the company car. That she owned. She owned the company. He didn't steal her car. She gets in the car, says, thank you. And then he goes, of course, I'm stranded here. And she goes, get in. They drive up to her fancy house in the hills. Yeah. Instead of her. straight to her house. Instead of her taking him to his house. Dropping him off and then her going home. She drives home to her home, then says, Here, gives him the key, says, Drive yourself home. I'll, I'll send, send someone, someone to, to pick, pick up it up the car, in the morning. Which I guess is what you do when you're a privileged model, but whatever. The point was they needed to both be at her house because. He walks her to the door, says goodnight. And says, please reconsider. And she basically gives him a yeah. rundown of the day. I've had I've had people point guns at me. I've yeah. had all this stuff happen. She I've has, seen a, a she, dead body. She actually has a very reasonable moment where she drives home the point that this has all happened in a single day. Which was not actually clear, I think, until that. Yeah. She found out that she was financially ruined. Mm-hmm. She'd been robbed. She's had a horrible date. She, had, she saw someone die in front of her. She had been questioned by the police cameras in her face and she actually has a really honest moment where she's like please just leave me alone i want to go to sleep so he says okay she unlocks her door starts to step inside and then david says want to hear something funny she turns around and the uh blonde henchman of the bland man is standing there right behind david and david says there's a man pointing a gun at the small of my back maddie turns around the bland man is standing there and they get dragged inside we cut to the inside of maddie's house where the stove burner has been turned on very suggestively and it sort of turns red. Yeah. And then uh, we see that the bland man and his henchmen have Maddie and David on the couch and the bland man is asking, where's the watch? Where's this watch? Where's this watch? And Maddie keeps telling him, I gave it to the police. Yeah. And being very, uh, very like, I gave it to the police, but she doesn't even seem especially scared. She's very convincing. Nothing about her performance suggests, I swear, uh, I gave it to the police. I I don't know where it is. She's not even nervous. She's just confused why this is happening. Because that's how bland this guy is. He doesn't even seem that threatening. And Maddie says, what I'm telling you is true. And the bland man says, I almost believe you. Do you know why I almost believe you? And Maddie says, no. Then the bland man turns to David and says, do you know why I almost believe her? And this is the first moment we see David being actually serious, not being fast talking, smooth talker guy. Being a human freaking being for five seconds. David looks at the guy and says, because you can't know for sure that she's telling the truth. You don't know what's true and what's not. So you have to find out by applying duress. So they talk about that for a little bit longer. Again, a lot of things in this go on for a very long time. They take movie lengths of time instead of TV lengths of time. But we're not getting anything extra in these extra lengths of time. You have people, someone will say, where's the watch? Someone will say, I gave it to the police. Then he'll ask, where's the watch? Five more times and get the same answer. So... (laughs) In the middle of all this, David explodes into action, jumps at the bad guys, shoves the bland man to the ground, the gun falls on the ground, and uh, David starts tussling with the blonde henchman, yells at Maddie to grab the gun. She grabs the gun and then shoots all of the vases in her house and doesn't hit anything. She seems to be just shooting wildly. She doesn't seem to be aiming for anyone or anything or even know what she's doing. She's just wildly and she's not even shooting wildly in the sense of, I don't know what I'm doing. She looks like she's aiming, but she looks like she's aiming at breakable things. Right. So 
the gun, she runs out of bullets, and the bland man has been counting. He yells, six, charges Maddie, grabs the gun away, shoves Maddie to the ground, just as Blondie slams David to the ground. Yeah, so they're it, laying on the ground. And a very unconvincing fight scene, which very later they actually referenced that it was supposed to be, which is good, because I was like, that was a poorly shot fight scene if David was supposed to look like a hero. He wasn't. Right. So the the bland man has reloaded his gun and brings them into the kitchen. We cut to the kitchen where they are now tied, tied up. up. Would have been the first thing you did. I, I get. I don't know. So they're now tied up. The bland man then... Does this whole unnecessary thing where he takes this weirdly large... Very large sausage. Sausage in some... Tongs. tongs and like holds it against the the stove burner the stove and talks about interesting the effect of heat, heat. on animal flesh on human, human flesh. flesh and everyone in the audience is going okay yeah we, we understood when you turned on the heater that this was gonna so he does this for an extensive That's length of time yeah we basically cooks the whole freaking sausage then puts it on a plate and doesn't eat it to which david says ah vegetarian man after my own heart they it's, then grab uh, Maddie and start to not even like push her face anywhere the, near the heat. They finally, just they get to the point of at least chair forward, bringing a her chair closer to the oven, which they should have done. Which she first starts thing. screaming, "I swear, I swear, I swear, I swear, I swear!" I gave it to the police. At this point, the bland man seems to believe her, despite the fact that she's not being any more convincing than she was five minutes ago. Right, but Fine. somehow he's finally satisfied. He just He's wanted to do the hot dog bit. Had his sight. Yeah, he was like, he always wants to do the hot dog bit. Why won't anyone ever let me finish the hot dog bit? It's I a good like bit. I just like the bit. I like the hot dog bit. <laughs> so he says, all right, well, if what you're telling me is true, I'll find out soon enough. And I have many not, friends at the police yes, department. If not, I'll be back and I won't be back to threaten you. I'll be back to kill you. And he leaves. And then right as he goes out the door, he turns back and says, have a pleasant evening. And then him and his henchmen bounce. Yeah. Maddie scoots could her chair. could have cha- happened so much sooner, but So fine. much sooner. Maddie manages to scooch her chair around and unties David. He then leaves her tied up. Which I don't understand why she untied him first anyway, but fine. Yeah. He then so, leaves her tied up because he doesn't want her... To get to, mad at him. When she finds out. He switched the watches and the watch she gave to the police was actually his grandmother's watch or something. And he has been wearing the watch in question this whole fucking time. This ridiculous watch which is very distinctive looking i want to make that clear if the bland man had any idea what this watch looked like it's a square watch like a giant rectangle with, like a, with a like single a teal, hour hand teal square watch with gold accents you think the first thing he would have done was search the two of them to see if either of them had the watch on them he then insults Jesus. maddie and says i don't actually really want you helping me solve this case you're just a blonde ball of fluff she gets mad and says, well, whatever, you're a sissy fighter. Yeah. Says that he doesn't fight like a real man. He that- doesn't know, which, uh, right, real man. But she makes an excellent point that you have to, well, you're supposed to, you know, you're supposed to punch your lead with your whole body. Right. You punch with your wrists. She makes some excellent points. He's not a good so fighter. So they kind of settle down a little bit. He unties her. She stands up and immediately clocks him across the jaw, knocks him down on his ass and says, that's how you throw a real punch. She actually does this really cute moment where after she punches him, she blows on each of her fists and like then like rubs them barrels. against Yeah, rubs them against her shirt. That's how she it's 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 a fun moment, but it feels very out of place with the rest of the scene. So the next thing we see is that they arrive back at David's office. He finds some blankets, they set up some little beds on couches in separate rooms, and uh For some reason, despite the fact that now Everything, her life has gone even more sideways than before, all because of David. Now she can't even sleep in her own damn bed because they're worried about these bad guys coming back for them. For some reason, she turns and gives him this saucy freaking look. And he goes, what? And she says, I'm surprised you didn't try to take me to your place. And all of a sudden she- And then he says, would you have gone for it? And she doesn't answer. She just looks at him. And I don't know what that look is even supposed to mean. And he goes- yeah, of course you would have. And it's like, what? Why are they flirting now? She should be furious with him. So he leaves the room the that she's sleeping in. The 80s are a in. foreign country, you guys. They are another land. So he leaves the room she's sleeping in, goes into his office, and she falls asleep to him playing Blue Moon on his harmonica. Because, you guys, I don't know if you knew this about Bruce Willis, but he always really wanted to be a blues musician, not and an actor. play harmonica. And he just got to squeeze that in wherever he can. So the next day, David and Maddie go to a pawn shop where the guy at the pawn shop offers them only $3 for the watch. 
and points out that there are no mechanisms inside the watch. The watch doesn't have any hands. You can't even wind the thing. The pawn shop guy opens it up and finds a string of numbers inside the watch. Maddie is unimpressed and is just like, why are people it, fighting over this watch? Irrationally, both David and Maddie, instead of going, okay, well, if it's not an expensive watch, it must have some other value. It has information on it. Okay, a string of numbers. There you go. Anybody who's seen a Ding Dan spy movie has figured this out. But instead, the two of them are losing their minds with the fact that it's not an expensive watch. So they leave in a huff. Meanwhile, the German grandpa has snuck in the back door of the pawn shop and immediately confronts the pawn shop owner. Is like, Did, were you looking at a watch? Were the numbers in the watch? What were the numbers? What were the, the numbers? The, the pawn what, shop owner reasonably says, did I see some numbers? Yeah. Do I remember what they were? No. He looked at them for three seconds a minute ago. Of course he doesn't remember the he's numbers. He's not Darren Brown. And yet the German grandpa is like, what were the numbers? Tell me the numbers. And then stabs him. The but stabs him and says, tell me the numbers. Yo, yo, buddy, stabbing the guy is not going to make him remember the numbers This better. will jog your memory, stab. At the exact moment that he stabs him, a gaggle of cartoonish old ladies enter the shop and are like, excuse me, Mr. Whatever, owner of the shop, hello. And he makes a break for it. So we, we then get this scene of David and Maddie in the car, and Maddie is finally at her breaking point with David. She doesn't understand Again. his Doctor Who like ability to just sort of stumble through every scene and not have any plan and not do anything finally confronts him on it that's being generous doctor who like <laughs> he never has a plan either yeah but he looks good doing it okay fair so then david stops the car they get a newspaper david has maddie look at the obituary sees the obituary of the guy who was jogging at the beginning and it mentions that the only witness to his death was the punk who got stabbed in the elevator which then makes Maddie realize maybe David does know what he's doing a little bit and maybe he has had some sort of idea percolating. But the whole scene is played like this weird manipulative thing where David's getting her to feel sorry for him and it doesn't really play as genuine from him. Yeah, it goes back and forth. Like, she asks him earlier, do you have a plan? He says no. She gets mad that he doesn't have a plan. Then he goes, well, uh, let's go check out the obituary for this guy. And she goes, oh, so you did have a plan. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I did. Okay, well, I'm sorry. Okay, I didn't actually have a plan. What? It's, it's, the dialogue it's, is uh, mind-boggling. Yeah, it's... At this point in the show, strangely can attest, I am almost literally tearing my hair out and seething in frustration over how ridiculous this show is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, we're, we're doing our best here. You guys, this, like, oh, we are I highly recommend checking this out just to believe that this thing got made. So they arrive at a place and... At the place is Susan Kaplan, who is the wife of uh, Jonathan, the jogger from the beginning, who got who murdered, who died. And David is like, I'll take point on this. And then uh, Susan recognizes Maddie because Maddie's a model. And so Maddie ends up taking point. They ask Susan about the watch. They claim to be collectors looking for a, a rare watch. And she immediately spills her whole life story, basically, which right. is that her husband was a pilot. His father was also a pilot. In World War II. In World War II. And she tells this whole story. Oh, yeah, well, he, he had that watch. He was given the watch by his father who was a watchmaker but isn't it weird the watch never even worked yeah and what a weird thing to meanwhile, leave his son his father a pilot in world war ii g gets asked by someone to smuggle four million dollars worth of diamonds out of germany by a nazi who saw the writing on the wall and asked him to help him smuggle diamonds into the u.s yeah. it's 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 a tangential story at best but we now know what the plot of the movie it is, is a more interesting story than anything that has happened thus far so we'll and let we it get go it in a one sentence exposition dump so, but suddenly they're like, oh, well, the numbers clearly connect to the, the, all these diamonds. So sort of almost as an afterthought, Susan says, oh, by the way, this other collector came, tried to buy the watch from us, offered us $5,000. We didn't sell it. My, my husband refused, said it was, had sentimental value. I could use 5000 sentimental dollars right about now. Because it, it, she does make it clear that she doesn't believe this whole diamond story because the the father was lived in a very small house, uh, drove a 10-year-old car, never missed a day of work in his life. Obviously, he didn't have any freaking diamonds. Right. But Jonathan believed it because Jonathan believed his dad was just trying to outlive this Nazi to make sure that the Nazi was out of the way before he cashed in on the diamonds. Right. Even if the diamonds ended up going to his kids or whatever. Yeah. So... They leave. David uh, 
for the first time, I think registers being genuinely impressed with something that Maddie has done, like the way she handled the conversation and talked to Susan. She really she got all this info and like managed to kind of didn't seem like Susan was a particularly tough nut to crack. Yeah, honestly, Maddie did nothing except show up and be a familiar face from the TV and the wife just spilled everything. But considering how David has treated all the women that we've seen him interact with up to this point, the fact that he just witnessed a normal conversation between two adult human beings might actually be impressive to him. Yeah, which was that is that the scene that made this film beat the Bechdel test? No, they were still talking about men. Yeah. I'm still talking about her husband, so no. I don't think we've beaten the Bechtel, Bechtel yeah. test by a long shot. Two, two women with names did have a conversation, but it was about the other men in the movie, so yes. sorry. Sorry, I got excited for a second. So, <laughs> so uh, they get into the car, and all of a sudden, David looks in the rearview mirror and sees the bland man's dead corpse sitting in the backseat. Very, very dead. He tries in the least useful way to get Maddie to get out of the car without, without seeing, seeing it. it. She sees it and freaks out and has finally had enough, says, I am done. This is over. Goes, I'm going to the police. Yeah. We are taking this watch to the police, telling them everything and washing our hands this whole situation. And David is following her down the street going, no, come on. Let's just let's let's sleep on it. She storms into a bar to use the a nearest bar to use a phone. She starts trying to call 911 so she can talk to the police. The police put her on hold. And then David starts buying her shots and just doing everything everything in his flimflam man arsenal to try to get her to not do this. Including pretending he's okay with it and it's going to let yeah. it go. So finally he says, fine, you know what? It's fine. He, get, he gets the bartender to call her a taxi. He gives her the watch. And then she's waiting for a taxi and he says... Well, well, dance with me in this shitty dive bar. Yeah, it's it's completely irrational. Once again, he's actually letting her go, and suddenly she gets soft. And suddenly she gets sentimental about him. For no reason. He's been garbage to her this entire time. He's in, roped her into this insane situation. But there's a sad country song playing on the jukebox, and he goes, dance with me. And she goes, instead of saying, no, why would I dance with you? You're a horrible human being. She goes, people don't dance in bars like this. And he says, whatever. Let's, let's, so they, they so then dance. They, they dance in the like, very romantically. He's pressing his face into her neck. It's like gross. They, it's assault. It's it's just. But she's clearly into it for some reason. Yeah. And so the, they have this this moment and then her taxi comes and she leaves. She turns to him and says, you know, despite everything, I did have fun with you, David. What? What? Dead bodies and all. I did have fun. Tons of, of fun. fun. <laughs> what are you? Oh, my lordy, lordy. So she, she leaves. leaves. The last thing we see in the bar is David reaches into his pocket and pulls out the watch. Of he course still he has stole it, it from of her course. while they were dancing. Of course so that wasn't a genuine moment. The next thing we see is Maddie getting out of a cab on the warpath. She is mad as hell. Then we cut to the inside of David's uh, detective, detective agency, agency, which is now called Blue Moon. There's someone painting a new logo on the door. The secretary is back. Yay! Doing a new rhyming thing. Blue Moon Detective Agency. We do a thing that rhymes with a thing and we're very cute. Yay! Oh, she's the best. <laughs> she's the best. I need gift sets of all of her scenes, please. Yeah. Please just, yeah, we need to just watch her. And yeah. that's it. Yeah. She needs her own spinoff. She, definitely. So... Uh, Maddie arrives and like is so mad when she arrives. She uses her handkerchief to smear out the the, the logo on the window that the guy is painting. Yeah, storms into David's office and is just like, "What the hell?" Yeah, David is sitting there all rumpled. Clearly, he's been up all night. There is like reams of paper all reams of paper table, everywhere of his desk. Which again, this is it's it's really odd that we haven't seen a lot of competence from him, but clearly he's figured something out yeah because he's very pleased with himself so they he explains to her that he's been up all night and he figured out what the numbers are their latitude and longitude coordinates because the guys were both pilots the dad was a pilot jonathan was a pilot right that's how two pilots would give each other a location right so there are two pilots in this pilot (laughs) oh god oh lord okay So, so David says, all right, well, we got to figure this out. So they run off to... For some reason, after everything, Maddie goes, okay, fine. They're back on the case. They run off through the library. To look at a map to figure out where the location is. And we see... Grandpa Nazi. Grandpa Nazi is is following them. them. So they get some location. They head to a building across town. There's a big old clock tower on the side of the building. 
and it stopped at the exact same time as yeah. the watch. Yeah. The facade of this fancy building looks like a big old uh, hotel or no, like a theater or something. Yeah. It looks exactly like this gaudy watch. It's a big blue tiled building with gilt edges. And they go, gee, you think that's a coincidence? They go up to the outside of the building. There's a little ledge. And David starts trying to climb up to the to the side of the clock. He does this he ridiculous falls bit off, where he keeps falling off. Keeps falling off. Maddie shoves him aside and says, pardon me, Mr. Walenda, which is this hilariously time-specific reference. I didn't get it. <laughs> the well, For those of you who don't know, the Walenda family is this dynasty of tightrope walkers in <laughs> circuses across America. You would know this. Strangely I, would know this. Yes. Uh, the most recent Walenda feat is one of the Walendas walked across the Grand Canyon on a tight wire. They're still doing stuff. This happened oh, just a Lordy. couple of years ago. Uh, but they, they're they huge, and they were huge superstars in the 70s and 80s on the circus circuit. I, uh, I still question how many of the viewers in the TV audience got that reference, but okay. Oh, they were like on the Johnny Carson show. They were a oh, big okay. deal at All the right. time this came All out. All right. And this it's just one of those little things that shows how dated a specific reference can be. Yeah. I definitely didn't get it. Just strangely, for anyone listening who doesn't know, is a circus guy. So, okay, of course, he would get that reference. So... She pushes him shoves aside. him aside. And despite the fact that she's wearing heels and a skirt, somehow she's better at climbing than he is. Fine. Climbs up the side of the clock tower and goes full on Harold Lloyd, barely clutching on to the minute hand of the clock tower yeah. by her fingernails and ends up almost falling. David runs inside, gets I, a long ladder, which you could have used from the beginning. Why didn't you look for a ladder in the first freaking place? So gets the ladder. That She climbs onto the ladder. Then the ladder falls off the building kind of sideways. As some, she's falling, she breaks this panel of glass that's in the wall for and some a reason. Bag, a lush velvet bag falls out. A perfect pristine black velvet bag with bright yellow embroidery that looks like it was put there yesterday, not 40 years before. So we get this moment of peril with David and Maddie hanging off the side of the building and they have to work together to get back onto the building. Just as they get back onto the building, oh, Nazi grandpa appears with a gun. Give me the diamonds, which he could have just walked up and grabbed them while they were hanging yeah, off the side of the building. I don't know. He could have just strolled up. The diamonds were sitting there on the ground while they were taking several minutes to save her from peril. But whatever, it's more dramatic this way. He demands that they throw him the diamonds. Instead, David he... climbs out on the ladder again and Maddie throws the diamonds to him. Somehow, neither of them get shot during all of this. And then David says to the Nazi, well, you've got Come to climb out here to get him. The Nazi climbs out to get the diamonds from David and somehow then, while the Nazi is on the ladder, that is enough weight to make the ladder bend. Yeah. The ladder bends in half, flinging David and the Nazi down to the side of the building where David is hanging on by one hand, holding the bag of diamonds. The Nazi is holding the other side of the bag of diamonds. And David has a nice moment where even though this guy's a Nazi, and we at least know he's also a very recent murderer... Uh, he's going, don't let go, don't let go. I can pull you up, I can pull you up. I can pull you up. So again, this is the one other time that I feel like David is acting like an actual human being in this incredibly high stress moment. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, the bag rips, the diamonds all fall, the Nazi plummets to his death with his diamonds, the diamonds in him are reunited, hooray, he's dead. I feel like it must not have been all of the diamonds though. Yeah, they don't. We don't quite find out if all of the diamonds yeah, fall or it's not. It's weird because clearly some of the diamonds are falling out of the bag, but then they don't. I was expecting a line later in the episode where they went, "Well, at least we got a million dollars worth of the diamonds still," because it was supposed to be four million. Right, but it's never resolved. It's never. Resolved David at all. climbs back up the side of the building, and him and Maddie hug it out. Yeah. Or whatever. The next thing we see is a newspaper headline that reads, "Model turned detective foils heist." Which I feel like they came up with that newspaper headline and then wrote the whole pilot around it. Yeah. Also, the photo of them in the newspaper infuriated me. David is looking at the camera and Maddie is looking at David. Ugh. Ugh. She's looking at him like, my friggin' hero. Gag me with a crowbar. So they're They're in Maddie's Maddie's house. house. She is serving him tea. He is begging her. We were a great team. Were you? I feel like David actually did most of the detecting in this. And Maddie was just like randomly did some things. Uh, We're a great team. Come on. Let's start an agency together. Be great. And she says, I just need some time to think about it. Very reasonably. He's like, no, decide right now. I'll go in the other room. No, I need a day. And he says, so same time tomorrow. And she says, fine. fine. She smiles. Okay, same time tomorrow. 
She opens the front door of her house to usher him out, and there is a swarm of reporters. Waiting, and David says to them, Sorry, everybody, there won't be a press uh, State, there won't, statement. There isn't going to be a statement today, but if you could all come tomorrow at the same time, and he and Benny look at each other and share a, oh, you moment, and it freezes, and the credits roll. And the credits roll, and the end credits are kind of like... The opening credits of a TV series. Yeah, there. weirdly, it feels like this. Now it feels like a sitcom. We've got a nice little moonlighting theme by Al Jarreau in an incredibly 80s way. It shows some fun little moments from the movie, the way that the intro to a TV show would be. I, I assume that ends up being the intro to the TV show. And there we have it. All right, my goodness. So. so normally this is where we would move on to our cliffs and ships, predictions, ideas about the first season, but this seems like such a unique situation that we need to actually talk about all of this. All of this. Why is this thing a movie? Why is it a, t- yeah, like why it's is this a, a... I mean, it's a, a, it's a feature length pilot, which a lot of shows have gotten. Okay, I'm not just talking about length though. This is a film yeah, so, like, after we watched the pilot, before we came in to record this episode, I went and looked up just a little bit of background information on the show because I was like, what is going on? And yet, I, you know, I've heard that there are many other shows that have been influenced by this yeah, show. Yeah, it's, it's famous. This show is quite famous. And th- there's so- this, this show is kind of one of the credited things with starting this whole idea of combining comedy and drama into a genre that we now know universally as dramedy. This was one of the beginning points of this whole thing. Uh, The show's creator apparently went and saw a particular production of The Taming of the Shrew as part of Shakespeare in the Park in New York City, starring Raul Julia and Meryl Streep. Whoa. Which I wish I could have seen that. I can't even wrap my brain around that, but wow. Could you imagine that kind of production? Oh, I, no, no, quite frankly, that's... So, uh, I I mentioned in our, what we know so far, that that this show was like Supernatural or something like that. I went and double-checked that information as well, and it's listed as fantasy in some of the, like, lists and things about it. Because apparently starting in the second season and moving forward, the show had these long dream sequences and fantasy sequences, cutaways to characters' imaginations and dreams. There were like full-on musical numbers. And in one of the episodes, they do a retelling of The Taming of the Shrew featuring uh, a version of David Addison, Bruce Willis's character, and Maddie Hayes. Uh, Civil Shepherd's character. So it's this interesting thing that the, the creator of the show somehow got away with doing this very cinematic thing. Uh, it was shot on film, and apparently the script for each episode was a hundred pages long, which is a feature-length film script each week that the, the the showrunner of the show was trying to do. There are interviews with Civil Shepherd and Bruce Willis talking about how they were working 15, 16-hour days, six or seven days a week while this show was shooting. So it's just this like insane, intense, massive production. I'm just amazed that I've never heard that aspect of it. All I knew is that it was a popular show. It had two actors who were already pretty big names. Mm -hmm. So it it, it does make more sense than the two of them just being on some rinky-dink sitcom, but still, I'm just amazed I never heard about the cinematic level. The, the, the of, scale. Yeah, the scale of the show. In, in addition to that, when, there was a point when the show introduced a lot of these dream sequences and things where the network was worried that audiences wouldn't be able to handle it. This is my favorite piece of trivia I've heard about the show so far. The network was so worried that audi- broadcast audiences wouldn't be able to handle all these weird dream sequences and things that they recorded a special like warning address to the audience. Oh my god! Saying like, "There's going to be some weird stuff in this episode. Hope you can deal with it." And the recording can you was delivered. Yeah. It? <laughs> the recording was delivered by Orson Welles. Excuse me. Let's just pick the hell out of that mic. It just keeps getting weirder. It just keeps getting weirder. So Orson Welles apparently came in. I I tried to find it in between, but I couldn't find it. Um, What? But Orson Welles apparently uh, recorded this thing that was like, the following program you're about to see has some odd sequences of fantasy action. Like something. And this is old Orson Welles, and it aired a couple of days after his death. Oh, weird. 
that and Transformers, uh, the, the the movie, were his <laughs> last two things. Uh, what? One last little, world. I guess, sort of production detail. This show used extensively the conceit of breaking the fourth wall with both uh, David and Maddie turning to the camera and addressing the audience directly. This started with the first episode of the second season where they actually turned to the camera and said something like, did you miss us? We're back on the air. Which is just like mind boggling. You have this like weird fusion of like <sighs> Scrubs, House of Cards and some detective story. I mean, the fact that they did that in the second season too, like that's just... What was this show? Like, it launches with a feature film length, feature film styled pilot with a way higher stake story than you'd normally get in that kind of TV show, which is completely resolved by the end. Yes. And they're they're going for this kind of, like, we talked a lot about how they're, they're having these exchanges where he's being incredibly rude and she's sort of putting up with it. And then she ends up being charmed by him, even though he's being a piece of dog shit and it's like you can tell desperate that they're desperately going for this kind of like old old hollywood male female dynamic honestly the fact that the creator was inspired by taming of the shoe explains a lot yes because the relationship in that play is also very unbelievable and this is something that now that we're kind of getting into looking at this as as what this could be as a series it's so much of their 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 back and forth dynamic of him being really rude and and her kind of putting up with it and then her being kind of rude to him and like like when she punches him and everything like would be the kind of back and forth that if these were two people who'd known each other for a long time and this had developed into some sort of odd rapport of them as friends but there are people who have literally just met yeah and are being absolutely atrocious to each other Although it's mostly him being atrocious I want that on the record Yes he is far worse than her Yeah but she is all she's usually sticking she's, around for all of it. Yeah, usually when she's being atrocious back to him, it's been, when he's she's been provoked into it, and it's actually almost a triumphant moment. Her most infuriating moments are when she's like, "Oh, you!" It's like, "No, no, oh him! He's terrible!" Don't. No, he's final. He's going away now. Just leave him in the parking garage. Yeah, don't. Uh, or you know, no, no, he's actually finally letting you leave this bar. Do not dance with him. Go wait for the cab outside. The the dynamic is so confusing. It's, it's I even even constantly reminding myself this was the eighties. It was a different time. It still felt off kilter and really off balance. Knowing that this is like people's canonical example of a will they won't they was almost infuriating. But then again, I'm coming at it from a perspective of having seen much better will they won't they's since then. Like and Castle, for all of its problems, was handled the will they want they think pretty well for all we know as this went on as a series they might have dialed the relationships into a different place maybe it we got a lot better over the course of the show we are judging it based on this just on the pilot pilot. what is what is amazing to me though looking at this as a pilot if i knew nothing else about this if i wasn't able to look up online and kind of hear about the odd production and everything Mm -hmm. i would have no interest in seeing more of these characters yeah, kind of. Well, it it really did. Except the feel, secretary. Except for the secretary. She's the oh, best. What a what a charmer. What a gem. What a peach. Honestly, though, it really did feel like this was a movie. If you had shown me this and told me it was a movie, you, oh, you want to see this old movie with Bruce Willis? Oh, sure. I've never heard of it before. Watch it, and then I go, yeah, actually, then um, after it ended, they uh, ended up pitching a TV show where they become detectives. I would have been like, oh, okay, sure. And I bet if I'd watched the TV show, nothing would have dispelled me of that myth. That's really what it feels like. Yeah, it's this fascinating artifact that I just does not seem to jibe with setting up a TV show, which... Yeah. For me, I do like a pilot that has a beginning, middle, and end that resolves some character arcs that doesn't just give you the first five minutes of a story and then tell you, tune in next week and for the next 30 weeks, and then you'll have a story. Like, I do like a beginning, middle, and end in a pilot, but this feels like a completely closed book universe. It's not just... uh, It didn't feel like it was actually setting up the universe, except that it ends with the two of them ostensibly starting a detective agency together. Although it doesn't even end with that. She has not given him an answer at the end. And neither of them has changed particularly as a character either. At all, yeah. Nobody has changed for this experience. And it's weird because she's in her house when they're having this interview at the end where where she's giving, serving him coffee or tea or whatever and it's not addressed whether they got any of the money. Did they get to keep any of the money? Did, did they 
how many of the diamonds, how much of it. Uh, presumably, they got some of it because she's not liquidating her assets and selling her house. Um, but also, they obviously didn't get all $4 million because they are going to start a detective agency together. So I... Uh, I don't know. Honestly, yeah. it's very confusing. There's there's a lot of really interesting stuff to we're being very hard on this because of the writing and the characters, but there's a lot of really interesting stuff in this that is very unexpected. There, there's a lot of technical flourishes. The scene at the end when they're hanging off the clock and everything like that has some great stunts. There's there's the whole thing where you have some characters playing against type in a way that I think is something that those of us who are who are watching things in the 90s and up to today are much more familiar with, like having the well-dressed, bland-looking Wall Street businessman type being the one chasing a frightened punk. Yeah. Like, that reversal of character types is really fascinating, especially it's like something you would see in a Neil Gaiman story now, where you have sort of a, a very cleanly-dressed, businessy type guy being the more menacing, violent character to a stock punk yeah. From the punk store, which is a store in Helsinki, Finland. Yeah. Oh, good to know. Yeah. So if you need to buy a punk, that's where to go. Hi. Sure, we would find that guy there. <laughs> it, although with the swimming goggles, that was an odd touch. That was, that was a, a very odd touch. A weird touch. I'm still not sure why. There were a couple of weird touches in this episode that seemed just sort of out of all, didn't make any sense. We're not addressed by any of the characters, but we didn't have really time to think about them because. So much is happening. Like the the Ivan Drago type. The henchman. Henchman. In the scene where they're questioning David and Maddie at her house, he takes off his jacket as if to threateningly imply he's about to rough them up. His suit jacket. His suit jacket. And he's wearing a button-down, very traditionally cut button-down dress shirt. But it is see-through. It is sheer. You can see his nipples and the fact that he's wearing a gold chain under the shirt. It is confusing Was as hell. Is that a style in 1985? Uh, uh, is that a thing people wore? Maybe, but it was a very distinctive, specific thing for a specific type of person in a specific setting, if it was. It was definitely the kind of thing I would at least only expect to see on a character if they were trying to establish this character as either a rich, uh, sty you know, fashionista type character. does not fit a Or some kind of, like, ridiculous gay stereotype hairdresser or something like that or someone at a, at a club right, I would not neither expect of those things. a threatening henchman with just the the weirdest shaped mouth I've ever seen on a human being in my life he's got this see-through shirt he's taking off his jacket to look threatening and all you can think is why is your shirt see-through nipples why why am i seeing your nipples right now Anyway, it, the weird touches like that that were distracted you but didn't actually add any information or humor or anything. Yeah, there's a lot of things in this pilot that just drag conversations where characters repeat the same thing three or four times. Yeah, and one of the things that you expect from a pilot, from TV in general, but specifically from a pilot where they're really trying to set everything up, is that every line of dialogue... And I'll say Charmed did this. There's a lot of things that weren't maybe so great about Charmed, but every line is embedded with information. Every line is not just a casual piece of information a person says to another person. It's developing backstory. And that's the kind of thing you usually get in a pilot where every bit of dialogue has to be weighted and embedded with information and setting things up. And instead this, they were just throwing away dialogue, entire conversations to establish one fact, I, which is something you expect more in a movie than in a TV show. Yeah. I kept waiting for the characters because you, for instance, with David Addison, you have him as such a broadly stereotypically stock asshole. I kept waiting for there to be a scene where like you find out that he used to work with two other detectives and they were killed in a hail of gunfire and now he's an asshole because he... He doesn't something. want anyone to get close to yeah, him. Yeah, or something. Like, there's we get no nothing backstory. Like that. In fact, I didn't even realize that. Excellent point. We know nothing about this character. David Addison, all we know is from his behavior that he's a cocky jackass, but a fun one because we know that adorable receptionists did like him. Yeah. And we know that he... Ran this detective agency. That's all we know about him. We've been given zero backstory. He ran a detective agency that has only existed for three years. Yeah, for three years. And he points out to Maddie at one point, like, he knew the game. He knew that business existed to be a tax write-off to operate at a loss. And he said, we were supposed to lose money and we were great at it. Give us a chance to make money and we'll do that too. So, like, he, he knows the game, but he was also perfectly comfortable running a business that he knew was supposed to lose money. He stresses at one point that he owns two company cars for him, both Porsches. Yeah. 
probably there's there's a there's a red one and that they drive a in, silver one. Yeah, I'm gonna assume. But like, it's he, we know nothing about his backstory. We know quite a bit about Maddie. At least she mentions she's been uh, modeled model since she was 14. Mm-hmm. She addresses the fact that she's worked very hard for it. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that she doesn't really work that much anymore. Yeah, she's done. She's it's she's like she's made done. her money. She said she had it, she had her finances being managed, yeah. and she was like basically retired. I guess she just yeah. wanted to hang out. And enjoy the spoils of her work, which modeling can be a lot of very hard work, yeah. especially if you start when you're 14. So we, I was willing to accept that even though she is pretty privileged and she is a little bit clueless about things, she's more or less to, has her shit together and has worked very hard to get everything that she's got, more or less. Yeah. David is is a, a jackass. We know nothing. Yeah, we know, he's, I know more about Heath Ledger's Joker character than I know about <laughs> David Addison at this point. Yeah. You you see shows where they're constantly, everything a person says develops something about their backstory or their relation to another character. You know, on Firefly, for example, like mm-hmm. is often given as an example of a really good pilot. Every line they say addresses something. Oh, was this, was it like this when you two were in the war? You know, Mal yeah. and, and Zoe, you know, addressing, yes, they're both soldiers. Now we know they're yes. both soldiers and that they met were in a war, you know, Establishing things like that. This movie pilot had mm-hmm. almost none of that. Which so I would say, judging it as a pilot, it's not a very good one, honestly. It, it, it isn't. There's, like I said, there's a lot of interesting touches and, and things at the side, but that's the way that you often talk about a really bad film. Yeah. Is that there are clearly people on this, the, the camera people, the lighting people, the people designing uh, the stunts and things who are doing great work yeah but the the central focus the two people that we're spending our most of our time with there's just not a whole yeah. lot going on yeah to be honest it's not even a very good movie but if you had presented this to me as oh this cheesy silly 80s action comedy i would have said oh yeah that was kind of fun i guess it was it wasn't great yeah. but it was fun as a pilot for a tv show it's completely incomprehensible <laughs> I, yeah, I, I do not know. I mean, I would assume they solve more cases. Yeah, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't set anything up that I can imagine them following on. So I can't make any, a prediction about what the cliffhanger for the first season would be because I feel like the show is going to end up being something completely different. Yeah. Or not completely different. We know that Alice Beasley sticks around, the, the receptionist, which, mm-hmm. good. Thank goodness. Because she's she is the, the best part the of the best show. The best part so of the whole damn movie. Um, so we know that she sticks around. We know that they start a detective agency. Mm-hmm. And presumably, every week, they solve a crime. But whether there's any kind of overarching storyline for that first season, I couldn't even begin to guess. Because I can't imagine it would have anything to do with the diamonds. I no. feel like they ended that story. They I, solved that. That's done. This is not giving us a lot to go on from there. And also, in terms of like cliffs or ships, like... They're the will they, won't they. There's not going to be anything else. Right. There's no other characters. This is not an ensemble piece. No. It's all going to be about the two of them. There's There'll be other characters. There'll be the receptionist. There'll maybe be a few other regular characters, I'm sure. But it it's all about David and Maddie. That, that I can assume, not only based on the pilot, but based on what I've heard about the show. But based on the pilot, you've given us a thing where it's entirely hinging on their relationship. And their relationship is very unhealthy and yeah. not, not that compelling. compelling. Yeah. I have to assume that if there's any other romantic relationships on the show, it's that eventually Alice Beasley in true uh, uh, Janine from Ghostbusters style, who she's very similar to, she gets herself, it's her Rick Moranis, you know, they they throw her a bone and she gets some nerdy guy who's her boyfriend or whatever. I can't imagine them having any other relationships on the show that matter. Final verdict? Will you continue watching the show? I... Based on this pilot, I have, I'm not interested, but based on like a cursory reading of some ephemera related to the show, I'm very curious to check out what this show is week to week. Like I'm definitely on board for a couple more episodes and uh, knowing that the first season was only six episodes, maybe the first episode or two of the second season. Oh, the first season is six episodes? Yes. Oh, this show just gets weirder and weirder. It does. Because that was not common at the time. No. It's not really common now, but like... Yeah, so I'm wondering if this was kind of a Parks and Rec situation where after a couple of initial episodes, they had time to go back, retool it, dial it in, and get better character 
interactions yeah, and that development. Ex- that explains better why it changed so drastically at the beginning of the second season if the first yes. season was so short. Yeah, I gotta say that based on just watching this pilot, I was so infuriated by it and so just confused. Which part of the infuriating bit was that I was expecting something different. And I'm realizing this is probably going to happen a lot on this podcast where we think a show is going to be something and then it's something very different. But yeah, given this pilot, no, I don't really want to watch it. The only reason I would want to watch it is just out of just, yeah, curiosity of like, where the hell do they go from here? Not enough curiosity to make me watch it, to be perfectly honest. I really, really don't want to. Well, check it out and let you know how it goes. Yeah, yeah. Give me the Cliff's Notes. All right, that was quite an episode. I hope we didn't sound too stressed out. We were a little tense about getting that recap done in a reasonable amount of time. It's surprisingly hard to keep them tight when you're talking about a show that's 45 minutes, much less an hour and a half. We will not be doing a lot of shows in the future that are that long, so I hope it was still enjoyable to listen to. One thing to add for addendums and corrections, which is that Alice Beasley, who played the secretary, uh, was, I mentioned in the podcast, I thought she must have been in like 20 different 80s movies as a secretary, and I looked up her IMDb, and no, she was not in that much that I recognized before or after Moonlighting, but she was on Moonlighting for so long, and it was such a popular show. I think it just a lot of people have aped her since then, and I've seen those iterations, other people in other TV shows and movies doing that character, um, that it just convinced me seeing the original that I had seen it before. Anyway, it's like people reading Lord of the Rings and going, well, this is just cliche fantasy. What's the big deal? One thing I did recognize on our IMDb page was that she was the voice of Miss Grotke on Recess. Fun fact for you. She also totally looks like that character. So nicely done little visual reference. Tune in in two weeks on January 22nd. We'll be dropping our next episode about Degrassi, the next class. Finally, we are doing a 22-minute show. I'm so excited for us to be able to, like, breathe and recap a show without being panicked. I uh, hope you guys tune in and listen to that one. See you then. Hey, me, fellas. Look here. Seagulls. Forty one cooler seagulls. <laughs> Pilot House Podcast is a production of Strangely Dewsburg and Sarah Shea. You can find out more at pilothousepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PilothousePod, or subscribe, share, like, all that stuff on iTunes or wherever podcasts can be found. How is this a real commercial? <laughs>